Welcome to episode 181 of Live Happy Now. This is your host, Paula Phelps, thanking you for joining us today. This week, we're talking with Andrea Gigline, who combines her innate entrepreneurial spirit with a passion for positive psychology. She's an author, publisher, media personality, and founder of Serving Success, a Las Vegas-based advisory that teaches business leaders to apply positive psychology principles to their business practices. She's here today to share some of her top secrets for flourishing. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on Live Happy Now. I've been wanting to have you as a guest for a while, so I'm really glad we were finally able to make it work out. And I thank you so much for the invitation. Well, there's so many interesting things to talk to you about, and so we could actually just do a whole series with you. <laughs> but, but <laughs> and I, you know, I'm always open to those types of things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and you know, one of the things that we want to focus on today is the business side. And, you know, what's so interesting with you is that you have this amazing business background. And so I wanted to know how and why you decided to combine your business sense and that success with positive psychology. Well, you know, the gift of positive psychology came into my life decades after the love for business. I fell in love with business as a child because I came from a family that owned, they were the plumbers. My dad was a butcher. Everyone was an electrician. Everyone had something that was their business. And I just fell in love with and assumed that that was always going to be a part of life. And then the psychology of what makes people want, what made me You know, we start with ourselves. Everyone who's listening, I hope, appreciates that they are their greatest teacher. And for me, you know, life was throwing me more bumps than I knew what to do with. And I'll be very honest, I got into business very young because I had been sexually abused as a child. And going to work separated me from that situation. So I started working at 14 years old. Paula, I'm always honest about myself. I was driven to earn money. I came from a family that was well provided for at the most minimal levels. We ate, we had housing, we had dental. We went to church. We had it all as far as our world knew it. And I wanted more from the time I was a child. And money was the way to do it. Yeah. How then did you take that love of business and that drive And then start meshing the positive psychology. Where did the positive psychology come in? Fast forward 25 years into my adulthood, and I've owned everything from a Haagen-Dazs ice cream store to work for corporations. I love corporations as much as I love small businesses. And what happened was life had beat me down more times than I knew what I think by the time... I ran into positive psychology. My husband had already been fired no less than three times during our marriage. And, you know, things just weren't going good. And he actually sent it over to me. I looked at it. I already had my doctorate and something just clicked. And once I got involved with that and was taught by Marty Seligman and and Ben Dean at the time, the impact of attitude on your ability to traverse all things. And for me, my world was business. So I had the most practice in that environment. It just, I kept studying and applying and studying and applying. There was never a day that went by that I didn't do both. 
Well, how do you, I love that, that you talk about that study and apply, study and apply. How do you apply these principles in your daily work? Because I've met you, I've seen you, and it practically jumps out of you. There is no mistaking that you are living, you know, you are walking your talk. Yes, and thank you, because I do. Because my life, you know, I'm going to think of a a word that I can actually use. My life is as stinky (laughs) as everybody else's life. My stepson had cancer. My husband gets fired. My adolescent daughter at the time didn't talk for me for that decade. We, we lovingly call it the dark decade in our house. She is now <laughs> very much in love with me and the most magnificent human being doing the most magnificent work. But I'm telling you, the amount of loss and continual loss. My younger brother, he was one of the first thousand people in the world to die of AIDS. My middle brother, I grew up in a home where he had his challenges. My older brother came back from Vietnam as I don't need to explain what that looked like. Yeah. And so that was life and positive psychology. The application for me looked like this, and this is how I've given it back to everyone I work with. It came to me through books and the difference between me and those that work with me learn. Don't just read the book, use what they're telling you to do. So When I was reading a book and it said, you know, like in the case of positive psychology, where there were 12 set exercises, one of them was develop gratitude, whether you have it in your top five strengths or not. I happen to have it in my top five strengths, but I was pretty shocked that it was there because I remember first hearing in the early 90s how much that mattered. And I think it was someone in the self-help community that had the, you know, an attitude of gratitude. And I was like, are you kidding me? My husband is fired. My (laughs) stepson has cancer. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about here? Yeah, you're like, thank this. (laughs) Yes. And how writing was so important. All these very things that were being taught in positive psychology 10 years later, because they had now married the science to it. I actually started using, and this is the important part for myself and for everyone. I used it whether or not I immediately got results or not. I trusted the science. I trusted the sources. So what I always suggest to people, and particularly because this is such a well-grounded field, this is something you don't have to be embarrassed about one iota. Because for everything from gratitude to why you savor a day to how you change your negative thoughts by using the ABCD disputation, how you dispute with yourself, all of it is perfectly grounded. And because of that, I'm going to be honest, I'm a snob. I needed <laughs> I needed it. No, Paula, I'm serious. I needed the credentials. There's a reason why I have two master's degrees and a PhD and then got the... I also have love of learning as a natural attribute. So for me, every time life got tough, I went back to school again. So your question of what does it mean to apply? It means to trust for some period of time. And for me, I always guide a minimum of 90 days. It took you way more than 90 days to be this unhappy. Please give it 90 days to see if something can make it different. And as you well know, and as you well teach, I, you know, in the, I follow what Live Happy, you know, teaches both for children to do writing, reflection. These are the things that really move you forward. 
is it important to note that it's not necessarily linear? Because you might be going progress, 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 and then kind of do the U curve. <laughs> and oh. and that doesn't mean you're failing or that you're losing your journey. Right. Okay. So the greatest thing I had to learn, and again, I will you know, give you what I have learned the hard way. It is not linear in any way. The fact that you did <laughs> fabulous yesterday doesn't mean you're going to do fabulous today. But what <laughs> is important is that you try, that you hold on to that feeling of yesterday and how incredible it was. And you use it to find a half ounce of energy to help you do better today. I was the most resentful because I didn't want to buy into the statistically proven fact that meaning and growth happens at both the psychological level and the learning level after strain. You know, all learning theory is about stretching in the strain part so that you can, you know, have something else. In the meaning literature, it's really clear. It is after traumas and tragedies that we begin to wonder, what is my life about? What does this mean? It is when you have the strain and it is when it's difficult. How important is it for you to be able to accept that you're that you resent it and accept that you're not comfortable with where it is, but still know that it's going to get better? Okay. So the last words you said, and still know it's going to get better. I would use the word believe. And that's where the early literature and hope came. And you not may not know what tomorrow holds, but if you can hold on to the premise that no matter what is happening this second, there is still a potential that it will get better. That's the little leap. So how important is that? 100% important. You don't have resilience unless you have that. What makes that difference, though? Because you can say, all right, I think it's going to get better, or I, I'm going to go out there and say, I know it's going to get better, but there's no evidence in front of me. It will. And what if it doesn't? I mean, that's our human nature is that's how we're going to be like, I can say this, but here's what I really think. Yeah. And here's the deal. When we say the word no, we really don't know. What we do is hold on to the potential. We believe the potential is always there. And that's what you're holding on to. That's what you can't give up on is the potential that it will get better. And you know that as long as you hold on to that potential, there's a reason to try again. So it seems nuanced, but it is very, very critical that you can put your attention in one of two places, because you can't fragment, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I believe it will get better and have your brain saying, but there's no evidence, there's no evidence, there's no evidence. And this <laughs> happens very, very much in, in illness and in job loss, economic loss. I see it all the time where you have to be able to say the words, I know there is something somewhere, somehow that can shift this. And you release needing it to be a specific thing, time or place. You know, one of the most interesting pieces of research 
And I don't believe it came out of the initial work in positive psychology. It may have been just a leap before, but it was the research that came out of the POWs in Vietnam. And one of the high ranking, uh, not John McCain, but one of the other high ranking officers was asked, how did you know the difference between the ones that would make it out and the ones that wouldn't? And he said, the ones that set a specific date of when it would happen, those are the ones that had a problem. The ones that just kept holding on to knowing we can and will get out of here are the ones that survived. Wow, that's really powerful. One thing that I did want to get to before we have to to let you go is your concept of work as a playground. Now, I think that's so interesting that you use that because for a lot of people, it's more like a prison than a playground. (laughs) (laughs) Everything starts in your mind. (laughs) Exactly. So can you tell us, first of all, what that concept is and then tell us how we can create that? Okay. We are adults far longer than we are children. (laughs) And we, for some reason, give up the concept. It's like we're allowed to play as children and then someone forgot to tell us we're actually allowed to do that going forward. And as adults, we spend the bulk of our time, whereas children, we may have spent, especially early in our lives, in the playground. We, as we grow older, spend the bulk of our life, which speaks specifically to the business of flourishing, why I use work and business as the place for you to grow your greatest strengths and flourishing, is because you spend the most time of your life there. So what that means to play where you work is that no matter where you're starting, know your top five strengths. And from there, on a moment-by-moment daily basis, make sure you are seeing those strengths or using them to help convert how you think about a situation. And an example would be, I used this in a presentation just the other day. So a boss comes in and let's say one of your top strengths is curiosity. And a boss comes in and throws a report on the desk that you worked really, really hard in order to do. And said, are you kidding me? This is all wrong. Just what you want to hear. Right. Okay. You need to redo it. Now, Your mind is immediately going to go to a lot of other things other than, oh my goodness, I have curiosity as a strength. I think I'll be curious about what this person is saying. No, that isn't where your brain goes, but if you can even come closer. So instead of reacting, like, what do you mean? Say, I'm curious. Actually use the word of your strength so that you're reminding yourself you're actually giving your brain a moment to pause and you're doing it with one of your own known strengths. So you say something like, I'm curious. You know that I want to do the best I can. Tell me what you think I need to improve on. That's a great way to do it because that's not where we naturally go. No. (laughs) And you won't naturally go that the first or the 50th time, but if you can get closer and if you can use the hints of using your strengths in your own language, what you're doing first and foremost is reminding yourself that you have natural strengths to use no matter what the situation is. And how long does it take to really learn how to integrate your strengths into a, into any environment? Okay. Second nature. Yeah. The more you work it, the more it works. And that's the closest I'm going to come to that. I will tell you that for me, the habit of reading, writing, and reflection on a daily basis 
took me close to 20 years to put into my life. The last 25 years have been magnificent because of it. It's really not a race to the finish. It is a daily commitment to improvement. Andrea, I wish that we had a couple hours, but we don't. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Again, thank you so much for giving us your time today. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for the invitation. I very much enjoyed the conversation. That was Andrea Gigline, also known as Dr. Success. If you go to our website, livehappynow.com, you'll find a link for her free ebook, The Five A's of Successful Relationships, which includes a free self-scoring happiness quiz. And speaking of happiness quizzes, here's a guy who always aces his. It's Live Happy editor, Chris Libby. We are here to talk about our favorite subject, which is work. Work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's not the first time that we've broached this subject. So it seems that it must be kind of important to people. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you spend 30% of your life at work. The other 30% is with your family. And then another 30% is supposed to be sleeping. So it's a big portion of your day. Yeah. And you know what? It used to be that people didn't really worry about whether or not you were happy at work. They just wasn't like you work. That's what you do. They call it work, not fun for a reason. But Mm -hmm. that mindset has really changed. Now, you just ran some interesting stories on our website, Mm livehappy.com, that looked at work and some of the changing mindsets about it. Yeah. One of the biggest problems with work, especially with younger people or the millennial age, is burnout, work burnout, which means your employees are getting disengaged and dissatisfied in the workplace. And why that's bad, especially with millennials, is because they're becoming the biggest working segment of the population. And it costs companies a lot of money when employees aren't engaged and they're calling in sick or they're looking for another job or and then they just don't are not enjoying themselves. So Gallup recently released a poll that said 30% of millennials say they are burned out often and 70% experience some sort of burnout. Let me ask you, how does that compare to the rest of the population? Do you know? I mean, because I know a lot of people who are not millennials mm-hmm. and who are clearly pre-millennial <laughs> and they're burned out as well. So mm-hmm. do you know how that compares? I don't. I don't have that right in front of me. But being the biggest working population, of course, burnout is a problem with all employees. But for the millennials, because it's such a big segment of the population, I think the important thing here is it's something that needs to be addressed so it doesn't carry on to further into their career. Is there a difference in what causes burnout for millennials versus, say, someone like you and I? Because we're just made past the cutoff for a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, the 18, and this is from a report from the Robert Half and Associates, I believe, and it's the secrets of the happiest companies and employees. They released it for millennials. The top things they need to be happy, which would, of course, avoid the burnout, is feeling appreciated, having pride in their organization, and having a sense of accomplishment. Now, these factors are the same for other generations, like 35 to 54. They like accomplishment as well, but their biggest factor is pride in the organization. And the feeling appreciated really doesn't seem to register in that age group. But when you get to 55 and up, the baby boomer, which is the second largest working population, their biggest aspect for being happy at work is fairness and respect. So you can see there's different things across the board, but for millennials, the number one thing is they have to feel like they're valuable and that their work means something and and people appreciate what they're doing. 
That's interesting because I wonder if that speaks to kind of a changing mindset overall that, you know, like I, I made a joke earlier about how it, it, we didn't think about being happy at work. It was just, mm-hmm. it's work. That's what it is. And now we just, I think positive psychology plays a role in that. We want more satisfaction overall in, in our relationships and in what we do and in who we are. And so I wonder how much that plays into it, just the overall change of the way we look at our world now. It does because I think, and I don't have anything to back this up, but in my opinion, I think as the workplace becomes more technologically advanced, you rely less on machines and it's more about people, people interaction, relationships, and things like that. So the core foundation of most businesses now is people. And so you have to figure out a way to make that work. Of course, if you were in a factory and you had a machine that was broken, you could fix the machine and then it keeps going. If you have a person that is broken, then, you know, mentally and it's just not there, that's a lot more difficult to figure out. And so places like Gallup, they say, if you want to avoid these things, the employees have to feel appreciated, have to have a little bit of freedom and autonomy. And you have to be a coach instead of a drill sergeant. Interesting, because I think that would benefit not only the employee, but the individual who is managing them. Mm -hmm. I think you feel a lot less likely to blow a gasket if you're encouraging and mentoring someone than if you're ordering them around. Oh, sure. Mentoring, there's a lot of benefits. And there's studies that suggest even that the mentor gets more benefit than the mentee. Oh, really? Yeah. Just by being able to help somebody being somebody who's more experienced and taking somebody under their wing. That, that's a valuable resource that I think is underappreciated. And I think it's something that businesses should look more into is mentoring younger associates. That's interesting to think that that could improve the workplace environment, make the employees happier, both the managers and the, the underlings. Mm-hmm. And that, as we know, happier employees lead to more profitable companies. Man, it sounds like total win-win. It does. And, you know, it's not a one-fix solution for everything. I mean, what this report, the Robert Half and Associates report says, is employee happiness pivotal to your organizational success? Yes. Is there a one-size-fits-all approach? Uh, no. So you kind of have to, you know, figure these things out and kind of balance and weigh, weigh the things that work for you. Because not everybody's personal happiness is the same, but understanding that engagement levels and workplace satisfaction are important, it's very important for businesses to figure that equation out. That's terrific. Well, see, that's, yeah, we've just solved the problem, the workplace problem. (laughs) Do the tough stuff first, right? Yeah, in less than 10 minutes. There we go. How awesome is that? Well, Chris, this is so interesting. We need to talk about work again because I know we do a lot. Sure, yeah. We already talk about it, so we might as well have a microphone in front of us when we do that. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for mm-hmm. all the insight once again. And tell us where we can go to find out more about this. As always, livehappy.com is full of great information, not only about work, but life lifestyle, everything you need to know about happiness is on livehappy.com. And more. It's everything and more. And more. Right there. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Chris, we'll talk with you next week. All right. All right. Have a good one. You too. That's all for this episode of Live Happy Now. Be sure to visit us at livehappynow.com to learn more about Andrea Gigline and how you can use your strengths to flourish. And if you like what you've heard here today and want to hear more, 
go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Search for Live Happy Now and subscribe today so you'll never miss an episode. That is all we have time for today. So please join us back here again next week. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.